Hello, Story Community. Our gatherings are filling up quickly. Our Wonder Workshop with Brad Montague this Friday in Chicago is completely sold out, but there are still a few seats left in LA and Denver. This is an incredible opportunity to spend a day learning from and being inspired by the creator of Kit President and so much more, Brad Montague. We just completed our Nashville workshop this past Friday, and it was unbelievable. The LA workshop is coming up quickly on Saturday, April 22nd, and our Denver workshop is on Saturday, May 20th. I promise you, I promise you, it's a day that is going to have a huge impact on your work and your creativity. And we've kept these workshops very, very affordable. To learn more and to register, go to storygatherings.com forward slash workshops. Well, I think that we have an, we have an esteem-based culture. You know, it's important that we feel good about ourselves, you know, and the fact or we feel good about what we're doing, and sometimes what we're doing sucks, and we're not that good at what we want to do. And unfortunately, that's a situation, that's a, that's, a, that's a wall that every artist walks up to at some point. So you either do the work or you do the exploration to get to that point that you want to be good or you are honest with yourself. You go, you know, I don't have it. I'm not, I, don't, I don't really have the stuff it takes to do this. And that's not bad. It's not bad at all, but it is honest. Do we have a problem with self-esteem in creative industries? And what is the right balance of encouraging each other by building each other up to inspire growth and further creativity? while also being honest with ourselves and each other about our strengths and our weaknesses. Remember when American Idol first aired? It captivated America by storm, not just because of the talent, but because of the sometimes brutal criticism of Simon Cowell and those who didn't have the talent. But was Simon really the jerk everyone thought he was? Or was he merely doing each contestant a favor by being the voice of reason in a culture built on a sort of you can be anything you want in life driven self-esteem. Do we need more honesty within the creative community? And what does that mean for you and your work and the voices inside your head? Well, I am Harris III and we discuss that and so, so much more this week on The Story Podcast. This week, we get to learn from an amazing conversation with Steve Feldman. I'm a cross-platform uh, video director, producer. Um, I'm, I, uh, you know, see, I'm already screwing it up. It makes me nervous <laughs> to even, can I tell you what, honestly, it makes me nervous to answer the question because I don't want to commit. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I understand. I just don't want to commit there. I mean, I do a lot of work for children. I, I am developing uh, documentaries for adults. And I just don't want to not do everything I want to do. Yeah. So that's what I do. I do everything I want to do. 
Steve Feldman is a multiple Emmy award-winning director. His credits are fascinating. Remember Barney, the kids show that started in the 90s with the big purple dinosaur? He directed that and Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. I mean, how's that for variety, right? His IMDb page is an impressive list of projects ranging from children's programming to TV docuseries about incarceration. But I think my favorite project from his body of work was the eight years he spent directing Sesame Street. He has so much experience for storytellers to learn from, but I love the way Steve answered my question, what do you do? Ultimately, he does whatever he wants to do. And that's not a cocky, arrogant, no one tells me what to do kind of statement. It's a way of viewing your work that has no limitations and is rooted in wisdom. Steve is a veteran storyteller who has far, far more experience than I have. And I love his perspective on living a creative life. But what did Steve do before he knew what he wanted to do? And when did he start telling stories? Let's begin our conversation by finding out when stories were first told to him. My parents seldom read books to me. Um, I, I, I don't have any recollections of, uh, of favorite uh, books. I used to read comic books. Um, I read everything in the DC uh, catalog. I was a huge fan of Batman. In retrospect, I was a huge fan of Batman because he had a backstory and because he, he really, I felt, had a right to be who he was. The other folks, I never quite figured it out because it was all, you know, supernatural stuff and Superman and, and the, you know, they, they, all, they all got their superpowers from nuclear accidents or something like that or they came from other planets. But Batman came from this planet and I always appreciated it. So I read comic books. I watched television. I was the first generation television watcher. You know, that's when it all came out. Um, and uh, I watched The Three Stooges. I watched uh, Edward R. Murrow. I watched all of these people and uh, all do different kinds of things. Um, our gang comedies, Laurel and Hardy, all these uh, incredible talents, comic talents, a lot of them were all available to us on television um, in short form and in long form. Even back then they had a... They seem to have a little bit better idea about about what people wanted to see. Um, so um, yeah, so I was I was the first of you know this media generation to go down. I would I'm not a digital native, but uh, um, but in that sense I I started young. No books. No books. No books. Yeah. So when did it occur to you that those stories were? preparing you to tell other stories? Really, very early on. Again, I was involved in uh, political action when I was in college um, in um, Boston, Massachusetts, which is my hometown. And um, we, um, I, I, in high school, actually, I got my first job in television. I was a switchboard operator at WGBH in Boston. And WGBH was is the uh, the kind of the mainstay public television station in the country. They they developed uh, Nova. They developed a Masterpiece Theater. So all the things that started to get imported, but also the the uh, programs of quality that were done in the United States were done at WGBH. So I was there at 15 years old, you know, uh, working as a switchboard operator at night just to make a few bucks, and. Um, but really, what happened to me there is that this was during the uh, '60s, and it was a time when um, when um, programming, even on television, started to become more controversial. And on public television, 
you know, it became even more so. So um, I would sit at the switchboard at the evening, during the evening, and while we were putting on our controversial political, social, and artistic programs, like uh, my, my favorite one was the uh, was uh, a, um, um, a play called Marat Saad, which essentially is a version of the Marquis de Saad performed by inmates of an insane asylum. Wow. So when you when you perform in this thing, it's not that you're an inmate, but you're playing an inmate performing it. So there was there was nudity and violence and all kinds of crazy things in it. And I'm 15 years old. And I'm sitting there getting these calls. And um, so when we would get these kinds of calls, um, I would just take I, my job was to take all the notes, and then at the end of the evening, I would compile them into a. Uh, public relations report for the <laughs> PR department upstairs. And that's when I actually fancied myself. And I, and I will tell you again, I hate writing. I hate writing because it's, it's just too lonely for me. And I, I got into this business because it's, it's intensely collaborative. And I like that. But, but in, at this particular moment in time, I, I wrote these PR reports and I laced them with my own opinions and my own little crazy 15-year-old sense of humor. And people started to comment on them for me. They actually liked them. Um, and so that's something I did for several years, even when I started college. I would work at night at the switchboard until finally I quit college and became a janitor at GBH And um, because I just wanted to be around it all the time. And uh, the funny story is that while I was a janitor, I was working with the experimental workshop at GBH, which is... Um, um, has long since lost its funding from the Ford and Rockefeller Foundation, but years ago they were just pouring money into um, into innovation. Um, and um, when I was um, barely 20 years old, I got a grant while I was a janitor at WGBH to do an experiment in television, in abstract television, um, with dancers. I had this idea about wanting to take a, a, a dancer and a choreographer through, kind of through the lens of a, of a television camera and through a lens of technology called the, uh, this is when we really lose the audience. Um, <laughs> uh, I worked on a thing called the Paik Abe Video Synthesizer, which was a, um, a machine that did all these things that digital graphics do now. I mean, um, but, but we didn't have digital graphics then, so we actually toyed around with the cameras inside them and changed images that way. We sent audio signals through them to give them blips. I mean, there's a bunch of things that, wow. uh, that we did. And I, I, was, I was able to um, kind of uh, tutor, or I was tutored underneath Nam June, who developed this machine. And Nam June was this delightful um, conceptual artist uh, Namjoon Paik, which some of you will may have heard of, but most of you have, probably have not. But he has his own permanent exhibit at the Whitney in New York. He's passed away a few years ago. But Namjoon was this little, um, he must have been 5'2", five, 5'3", five, Korean man. He used to come in all the time. And when he would come in to do his work, he always insisted on s staying at the Y. He didn't want to spend money. And I was enamored by this guy's story and who he was and, and how he lived his life. So that, the PR reports, I mean, all of these things say, all right, I, I'm liking this. I'm digging this whole business, and I like how it's working, and I like how I'm able to work in it even though I'm not a writer, 
not a reader. Um, <laughs> this is how I can. Uh, this is how I can speak. Yeah. This is how I can speak. That's amazing. Yeah. So I did a lot of alternative things with media at the beginning. I was an experimental video artist when I started. So and then I then I, I dabbled in some in some more experimental documentary forms at the time, and um, and then I came to Charlotte and I was doing these crazy things. You know, we did the Magic Rabbit Theater, the Airwaves. Uh, I did uh, with a with a few people, and it was it was just sketches. How would you describe what an experimental video artist does? I don't know that I've ever even heard that phrase. Yeah, you haven't. You haven't because they're all they all it's all been assimilated. One of the interesting things about Boston as a media community then, less so now, although still in documentaries, Boston pretty much is known as a as the documentary center of the country. But it also it used to be the experimental film. And what you're doing with experimental formats is you're just, you know, just like painters will experiment with different, different, uh, different uh, styles beyond realism. They'll, they'll work in expressionism. They'll work in uh, more abstract um, cubism. All these things are just people taking the simple medium and giving a little push. Alan does that. Alan Clark does that with photography sometimes. He'll just push it a little bit. And that always intrigued me. So, I, and I, and I, my aesthetic was to was more in that direction. So we were doing things with the video synthesizer that was just uh, some of it was organic, some of it was upsetting, some of it was uh, stark. You know, William Wegman, the guy that has the dogs, Man Ray, he came out of that workshop. He was a photographer and a painter. And one day, I'm sitting at the workshop in Boston, and I get this tape, this black and white tape, that is shows him doing sketches with his dog, Man Ray. And we just sat down and looked at him and we went, oh, get this guy here, like immediately. I mean, he was brilliant and it was so funny and so out there. You know, you would never see it on television at the time and it took years for his work to even assimilate on, but that wasn't his goal. He didn't want to assimilate onto broadcast. A lot of people came from other disciplines. I actually, because of my age at the time, I just came right into it because I, I was raised on television and I wanted to do something different with it. But a lot of these people were photographers, painters, sculptors. They came from other disciplines. Uh, Namjoon Paik was a conceptual artist. He'd do these wild things live uh, with, with um, remember, you don't remember, I keep asking you that. Charlotte <laughs> Mormon, who, who, had, who was a cellist, who would play cello, and, and um, she wasn't naked, but she had, a, she had a, uh, a bra that was made of two small little televisions. And the televisions um, were piped in. There were there were, there was uh, abstract images on one on one breast, and on the other <laughs> breast there were there were images of what she was doing while she was doing it. So it was just very simple, but that's what it was. So that for was that a, time, that must that have felt groundbreaking. Oh yeah, if you if you go to the, if you go to the museums in New York and look where his stuff is at, you'll you can just get a sense. And he was doing this a long time ago. I mean, he was doing this in the '60s. And he developed this machine with a Japanese engineer named Shuya Abe, um, who just helped him integrate it all, and that's what we did. So, and I had a lot of great teachers there at the time. Imagine being on the cutting edge of your industry, so cutting edge that your full-time job title includes the words experimental artist. Uh, that might even be what your current work is considered. But what happens when everything in your industry around you changes? 
And what was it like for Steve to go from being among a small group of experts doing groundbreaking work with specialized equipment to being surrounded by a culture where everyone had access to technology? And what previously took tens of thousands of dollars of gear and hours and hours and hours of experimentation to create could now be created on a single laptop, like the one I'm recording this podcast on, or even a device that fits in your pocket, like the one you might be listening to this podcast on. Is there something we lose as creators when technology simplifies our creation process? The only thing that felt better, I mean, I love the ease of how you can do things now because you're focused um, you're focused more on, on what you want to create as opposed to how you do it. But how you do it at that time, at least for me, was important. Uh, it was important that uh, when I wanted to adjust an image, I would have a little screwdriver and I'd go inside the camera and I'd go and I would alter it myself. And then I had to bring the camera back to normal again. So I had to do that. So you got to know it from the inside out um, and not from the outside in. And that was important. You know, I mean, I think anybody who paints or sculpts, they like the feeling of having the medium on their hands. It really feels good. I did a little painting and it just felt great to get messy. And it felt great to move the paints around and blend them with, you know, with linseed oil. I mean, I'm not a painter, but, but I, did, I did try it because it was, you could get dirty. The most incredible feeling I've ever had as a, and I, I hesitate always to call myself an artist. I really I don't, I don't accept that moniker for me. But the most incredible feeling I've ever had was um, the first time I was doing a documentary on a woman who was a potter. And, um, and she taught me how to throw a pot. And what you do when you throw a pot, um, or when you make a pot, um, you're on the you you have a lump of clay on the potter's wheel, and your the palm of your hand goes down flat on top of the clay, and you spin it and you spin it, and then there's this moment when the term that they use there's this moment when the clay is centered, and you can feel it in the palm of your hand. You can actually feel it when it's centered, and that's the point when it's able to be raised up, and it's you're able to really create what you want to create with it. And that, to me, was an extraordinary feeling because it had nothing to do with what you were looking at. It had nothing to do with what the end product was, really. It was just this feeling right in the center of your palm that gave that to you, and I never forget that. And I've tried to emulate it in other things, but I've never been able to. So why do you not consider yourself an artist? I don't know. Probably because I've seen so many great artists who were completely consumed by it. And you know, if you when we go to the next stage of my story, you know, the next thing I did was I went out and tried to make a living. <laughs> so <laughs> so I was I was not as um, I was not ready to give up all to just do that. And there was no way to do it at the time. So I had to make some decisions in my life. And so um, you know, I decided that, yeah, I think I'll try to get a, like a real job in television as opposed to what I've been doing. And so that was stage two. But I, I you know, even to this day, I still, I, there's certain, certain things that I do that I feel are artistic, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like the, I feel like a little bit of a poser. Back in the early seventies, we had a, a large anti-war rally in Boston. Okay. And, um, Everybody was there. There was about a quarter of a million people, okay? 
and I'm looking around and all of us had just, you know, the schools were closed down because of riots and stuff. And, and you look around and everybody's stoned or something or high um, or they're taking the day off or they're sunbathing or whatever. But they're there and they're all, they're all saying the right things. But I remember um, seeing um, a group of people called the Bread and Puppet Theater. And the, the, the Bread and Puppet Theater existed up in this part of Vermont. It's the furthest north. It's right below Canada. And it's called the Northeast Kingdom, oddly enough. It's got a very magical name. And um, they created these large puppets that they would mount on their bodies. Um, and they sometimes would have to wear stilts, actually. But they were huge so that when you saw them, the images of war and death were real. They were palpable. They were not, you know, just us, you know, holding up a peace sign and, you know. Um, and I realized at that particular moment um, that, that, even my political views, all my passion about this was full of shit, and that these guys were the real deal. Or as a con artist would say, these guys were the genuine article. I have a pretty high standard on what I call art and what I call an artist, and these people were, were that. I never, and I never, I remember I felt, um, I felt less than when I saw that. But it was humbling, and... Um, and it, it, it kind of cut my artistic esteem, if you will, <laughs> which I think is good because I think sometimes uh, I really think low self-esteem is generally actually just good common sense. So I really believe that too. Unpack that idea for me. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that we have an, we have an esteem-based culture. You know, it's important that we feel good about ourselves, you know, and the fact or we feel good about what we're doing and sometimes what we're doing sucks. And we're not that good at what we want to do. And unfortunately, that's a situation, that's a, that's, a, that's a wall that every artist walks up to at some point. So you either do the work or you do the exploration to get to that point that you want to be good or you are honest with yourself. and You go, you know, I don't, I don't have it. I'm not, I, don't, I don't really have the stuff it takes to do this. And that's not bad. It's not bad at all, but it is honest. And uh, that, uh, that quote actually comes from the film uh, Spanglish. Eh, late 80s, early 90s, I think. I don't know when Spanglish was, but the, it was a fairly good movie, but not spectacular. But there's this great line, you know, sometimes low self-esteem is just good common sense. So all it is for me is that is that moment when you realize that you've been lying to yourself. And you're not, you know, and you, you, and we do that as artists sometimes to a certain point until we get a sense that, that we can really own it and, and believe in it, whether people like it or not, it's ours and it's real. But I wasn't feeling that. And I wasn't, I never felt that as an artist. I always felt like I loved the process. I, I, my joy was working with people. Um, I, uh, so you may want to stop the interview now, but I, I, uh, I, um, I read an article, um, I read an article in the Harvard Business Review back in the 1970s, 70s. It was written by a guy named, um, oh boy, what was his name? I can't remember. Well, what it was, uh, it was a, it was a kind of a portrait of the, um, of the film director, Arthur Penn, very successful film director. But the, the, the concept behind it is that what you really are doing as a director 
in at least in his case, is that you're managing in a creative way a large number of creative people. And at a young age, when I read that, that jazzed me because I, that's what I liked. That's what I liked doing. I liked having some kind of vision for something. But with film, you, you know, not everybody works this way, but I'm not an auteur. You know, and I did my videos when I was an auteur where I was the only person. I, ran, I, did, I did the camera, I edited it, I selected the music, I, I directed the artist, fine. But working with a large group of very creative people, which is what it takes to make a film or a television program, is just, to me, I, I can't do anything more fun. There's nothing more fun than that. And part of it is that I feel I'm living vicariously through a lot of these artists. But I also appreciate, I appreciate the truth that's there, you know. And, uh, and if that can help me speak a little truth, then that's fine. But, you know, it's not who I am. I want to go back to that idea where you said. I bet you do. <laughs> where you said uh, <laughs> the part about how so many of us are lying to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we take that idea of we're lying to ourselves about what we're capable of. And, mm -hmm. and from your perspective, you say sometimes that's a good that's a good thing because it leads to low self esteem, which could be common sense. But how do you? What about the other side of? Because I think there's we also have voices lying to us, telling Absolutely. us that we're not capable of doing things that we actually are. So how do you distinguish which voice to listen to? Because well, that's the part. That's there's part two of, different voices, and they're both yes. lying. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's part of growing up. I mean, I I don't know how what else to say about that. Yeah, there's a lot of voices in our head and in our hearts, that, particularly in our hearts, that lie to us and tell us uh, you're not this or you're not that. Um, you know, they, they could be parents, they could be siblings, they could be um, peers, they could be teachers, pastors. I mean, I don't know who they could be, but they can be a lot of different people. But my sense is, is that we are, as a culture have put such a magnifying glass on this issue of self-esteem that I think it started to take on a different kind of life. And ultimately, when I feel I have low self-esteem um, about something I'm doing, I generally hear my own voice. I don't hear another voice. And I, I don't know how to tell people how to get to that. <laughs> I really don't. I yeah. really have no idea. There was no process. I didn't go to school. No one teaches it in college. <laughs> low self-esteem is good common sense. Gee, that would be a sucky thing to teach in college. They'd have to close the doors um, but there is this sense of always wanting to blame someone else yeah so yeah. the I, so the low self-esteem party are you talking about the the Simon Cowell American Idol you know someone's got to tell that kid they can't actually sing and they should go do something else well and I don't you're know talking if, about the right. voice that convinced that kid that they could sing because this culture has told them they can do anything they want yeah that's the voice that's the voice. And I think that that's a lie. And I think that there is a way to go about in our culture and not always a way that's, that's perfectly straight. It's not easy, especially in, as an artist. Because let's face it, if you look at most artists, the, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a very enjoyable experience. So what do you, what do you say then? Because there's a, there's a lot of people listening to this and the reason they listen to the podcast every week, many of them would say, because it empowers me and it inspires me and encourages me to, to not listen to the voices in my head and keep doing the thing that I felt like I was made to do. 
Well, you don't want to listen to the voices in your head if they're not yours. So the real problem here is discernment. We have to discern these things. We are not here just as kind of people who listen to everybody except our own voice. And you have to get in touch with what your own voice is. And that's not an easy task. You know, they probably are now teaching it in college campuses everywhere, but I don't, I, I didn't get taught it. And I, and I think it took me most of my adult life to even learn it. Um, I don't even, and I, so I can't say it as definitively as, as, you know, I can't say this is the absolute truth. But it's a motivating principle for me, especially now when I have a long career and I've been very successful in certain areas and in other areas not so successful. So, you know, it's, it's trying, to, trying to jump ahead of your experience a little bit and see what you're really good at and what, you really, what really jazzes you top to bottom and respond to that, vo- that nagging voice that says, you're really the best there is on this, but it's a lie. Do you, do you, I mean, this is, a hard, this is a hard thing to tell yourself you're lying to yourself. Sure, of course. Not, this is not easy stuff. And it, it, it was such a poignant uh, moment in that film because it's not easy stuff. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to tell anybody to do that. Yeah. And, wow. and, and Lord knows that there are lots of voices in your head that you have to eliminate, you have to ignore. There is no question. There's no question about that. But there are other voices in your head that you shouldn't ignore. So how do you balance the idea of being okay with low self-esteem, but also feeling like you respect your work and are worthy yeah. of doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, and that's that's where the the semantics come in. It's not really that you're you know, that you're okay with low self esteem. What 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 you're really turning away from is bullshit. You're turning away from puffery. You're turning away from I'm great. Don't you think so? Um, and you're saying this to yourself. You have this whole inner conversation. Well, wow, look what I've done. You know. And I, I still do that, but I have to shy away from it. And at this particular stage in my career, I'm very selective about what I even try to work at because I know that some things I'm not going to be good at. And, I, and, I, you know, and it's, that's just the way it is. We're not all good at everything. So it's finding that thing and then holding on to it for dear life. Because you're right, it's a great, it's an incredible life force when you can create something, when you can do something that you believe you're good at. Now, even with that, we get rejected, don't we? Is that an, sure. is a, and that's an, that's an exterior, that's an external voice rejecting you. You know, it's funny. Um, one of the things I love about LA, and I pretty much hate LA, but one of the things I really like about LA is that I, I felt that in LA, even more than New York, and I lived in both cities about the same amount of time, um, in LA, um, I always got the feeling that if you sucked at something or you weren't right, or you weren't good enough for something, people tell you. That, that they'll, there's that much honesty that they'll tell you. You don't um, think that happens in New York? Um, I didn't encounter it. Probably is probably not as much in New York because there's there's fewer possibilities. But see, in LA, you've got all these different kinds of things you can work in, and they'll they'll look at you and they'll look at the body of work you've done, and they're going to go, nah, "It's not going to work. It's just not going to work." In New York, it's it's. I just I never encountered it. Now that doesn't mean I was I was a lot more focused in New York than I was in LA, also. But. Um, and New York has a, has a certainly an attitude that it's gruff and tough, but um, 
But in L.A., people are in a hurry. And uh, they don't want me. You know, I remember I got the gig at Sesame Street because I called the executive producer like every week for months just to get an interview. And she finally said, all right, all right, all right, come in, come in. I'm tired of talking to you. <laughs> Literally said that. Um, so that's how that happens. But that's New York. In L.A., you know, pretty much if you, if you get onto a list and you get into someone's office and they look at your stuff and they go, it's not going to work out. At least that was my experience. Other people will tell you different. And that's what's great about the business. Yeah. So, so why Nashville? Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, well, I didn't like L.A. And I remember calling my um, the real estate agent who, you know, we bought the house from. And uh, I said, you know, I really want to move. So we, we had a couple of friends in L in uh, Nashville that we spoke to. And they said, move to Nashville. It's all happening here. Oh, and there's so many people from California moving to Nashville. Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's interesting. The, the other choice at the time was Atlanta. And it probably might have been a better place for me to move to in retrospect. Um, because it had, it had it's, it's developed a, it's actually the, the, the number two production center in the country now. It's actually dwarfs New York now, which is amazing to me. But it does. And, um, you know, they're shooting anywhere from 40 to 50 films a year there. And then there's all sorts of other stuff going on there anyway with Turner there. And that said, I moved to Nashville because uh, I wanted to get my daughters out of L.A. Didn't want to raise teenage daughters in in L.A. I thought that would have been way more than I could handle. Again, know yourself. Um, And... uh, um, and I wanted to change. I didn't like LA. I ended up traveling more for work than working in LA. So it, uh, it, it's not what I went there for. Um, and I made a mistake. I made a mistake going there. There's a lot of things I could have done differently, including stay in New York. But you know, we do things because we're, um, we're either greedy or stupid or, and in my case, this is, this is where you know, this is where I'm going to come back. You know, I'm going to come back to uh, to water. Uh, um, you know, I was dishonest with myself. It was not the environment that was good for me. Um, it's not the the the. Uh, it was not the group of people that I wanted to work with, and I was I was I was confused by a lot of things, and I made a mistake. So, what do you say to all the young creators and storytellers out there who? Are constantly hearing I've, you have to go to LA if you want to see. I have told several of them go to LA, but I've I've laid out my criteria for them, which was not in place. And if it's in place for you, you know I have a I have a I I have done some teaching in the graduate program of film at Lipscomb, and I've told a couple of students there. You know, you're right. Sure. You like to write. Your writing is prolific. You have a great sense of humor. You know, why stay here? You're not going to be able to sell anything from here. It's rare. Go there. Go there and see what you can do. But what is your criteria for them? Uh, I think that they're they're immersed. They're immersed in the process of what it takes to to do something before it gets bought. I mean, I have a, I had a student that I think has a concept right now he could sell there, you know, and I probably doesn't even have to move there. But you ought to take a look. You ought to take a look. But you know, it's one person's opinion. And, and of, of course, we hear this all the time. The business is so ridiculously subjective. And we see that on, on, we see it on Netflix all the time. You know, we see all the new programming they're doing. We're, and we're wondering, you know, 
How did that get done? And then we watch network. How did that get on? I can do better than that. Well, you know, it's, uh, but this is a bigger issue. Who are the gatekeepers now? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Let's talk about Sesame Street. Please. <laughs> you, uh, Thanks for saving me. <laughs> uh, so you, you called this, you said you called the executive producer? Yeah, I called several every, times. Every week? Every week for like months. Just really wanted to do that show. And um, what was it about children's programming that appealed to you so much? Well, I did a show in South Carolina called uh, Museum F Safari. And one of the funny things about my, this was in, when, I, when I decided to make money finally. So I went there to try to make a living. They, we had a, they had a position there for producer director. I was about 24 years old at the time, 25. And I, you know, and I knew very little about producing and directing. But I went there, and I had done some tapes that they liked. And uh, they, they looked at me, and they made the mistake of phrasing their questions in the incorrect way. And they asked me, um, um, could you direct the nightly news? And I said, sure. Could you, you, know, could you uh, direct, edit, write, produce a children's series on science and the arts? And I said, oh, I'd love that, yes. I, I, I could do that. So they asked me all the questions from that, not, not have you ever done it. <laughs> could you do it? And I just, uh, I guess that's a lie, but um, maybe not, because I really felt I could do it. I, I didn't think there was anything particularly difficult or mystical about it. So uh, Because you had high self-esteem? Because I had real self-esteem. <laughs> I had real, let's not call it self-esteem, let's call it real esteem. Real esteem. Real like esteem. Yeah, I, I believed that I could do it. And so I got the job and I had an incredible run there. I was there for two and a half years and, uh, and just enjoyed it. Uh, and I learned, I really learned everything I know today. But I was working with children in that show and that's what got me interested in, um, in uh, doing something like that, you know, on a more regular basis. So, um, so now fast forward to Sesame Street. I knew that that was a, that was a, um, um, a world that I felt comfortable in. So um, she finally uh, hired me and four other directors to, um, we were in kind of a trial basis. So what we would do there is we'd go there, we'd observe, and we would, uh, we would get a scene or two here or there, and then they'd give us a show, and then they would, at the end of the year, make a decision which one of us would stick. The real cool thing is that at the same time, um, I was doing a really inexpensive uh, industrial uh, film for Prentice Hall. Um, the producer there was a woman named Carol Carter, and Carol Carter's uh, brother was named, uh, Prentice Hall's a big educational publisher. Um, um, her brother's name, who she had hired to be the talent that day, was a guy named Scott Carter. So, and it was supposed to be comic, so we had fun, and I was working with Scott, and Scott, we just got along beautifully. And at the end of the shoot, Scott looks at me and he says, I'm doing this new show for Comedy Central. Would you be interested in directing it? So I asked him about it, well, what's the show? And he said it was, it was called Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. And uh, I went, okay, it sounds like, you know, yeah, that's be fun to do and interesting. So I started directing that first, before Sesame Street. <laughs> 
So we were in New York with Bill Maher at a time. It's practically the same thing, rather, right? Oh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if you really look at it carefully. <laughs> so you need a visual of this right now. Um, but um, so I was doing that show. At any rate, the reason I tell you that story is that um, the veteran director of Sesame Street, a guy named John Stone, who was one of the four founders um, of the show back in 67, I think, um, John was unfortunately dying of uh, ALS at the time, and he was just being, you know, so they paraded five directors in to observe him. It was just really cruel. But he used to like me above the others because I was doing Politically Incorrect, and that was his favorite show. Um, ah. So we, that's how we made a connect. And then I found myself doing, you know, doing the series. And uh, it was a great experience. Frank Oz came in and uh, gave us uh, instructions on how to really deal with puppeteers. He's so, a legend. Oh, he's hilarious. And a great director, too, yeah, he became, of live theater. Yeah. He became a great theater and a film director, and, um, and he was an amazing puppeteer. And what I always loved about Frank from the very get-go is that the, the year I started was the year I, uh, Henson died. And... Um, what I loved about Frank is that even though he was um, he had already done his first first couple of films in Hollywood, he would come back to Sesame Street for four days a year, lie on the floor with all the other puppeteers, and he would shoot Grover and Cookie Monster, and then he'd go back to Hollywood. And this was his not only his love for the character and his love for the show, but his just love for Jim Henson. And he just did it. And he did that for several years, several years. Um, and I always went, that was kind of, you know, as we talk about the general uh, community of artists, I thought that was so cool and so admirable. And I'm going, gee, I want to be like him. So these are, you know, again, it's who you meet. Uh, not not so much professionally, but 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 you learn so much about how to deal in this business. Like I learned a lot from Scott Carter, um, uh, who was a great writer, comedy writer, and but he was the, he's been with Bill Maher ever since. He's still he still is the executive producer of his HBO show. Um, so and that was an incredible opportunity. I did that show for two and a half years. Um, and then I then I fell nicely into Sesame Street, which was a blast. And I did that for eight years. Um, and then during that time, they hired me to do Barney. So I was like, uh, you know, the only person in the world who was working with Big Bird, Barney, and Bill Maher. And it was just, <laughs> it was like, I mean, it was perfect for me because I had all those things covered. I, I loved politics. I was working in a political show. Um, I got to redesign the set and do things with it conceptually, so um, that would improve. The, it was just a talk show. But I mean, I have to ask: like, you're 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 backstage in the green room with Bill Maher. And he's like, "So how's Barney going?" Right? Like, no, nah, he doesn't. No, no. <laughs> I've got a lot of Bill Maher stories. He never he never talked to me about anything like that because we would always do it off season. You know, I would I because when you're working those kinds of shows, you do a show and then you do another show, and no one no one is really aware of what you're doing when you're not there. All that is really exists in television is what you're doing with the people while you're doing it. That's all they care about. So, um, yeah, but it was a great experience for me. 
I just loved it. And I, I um, you know, I mean, Barney is a show that is, uh, you know, multi-camera live on tape. We're doing dance numbers and musical numbers and, and you know, large sets. It was actually a rather expensive show to do. Sesame Street was very expensive to do because it's in New York and everything in New York is expensive. Um, Politically Incorrect was much simpler but also challenging because it was so fast-moving. The conversation was so fast-moving that you had to, as a director, you had to really pay attention. Yeah. And I knew Bill well. It didn't take me long to figure him out. So I rarely even watched anybody else uh, on the set but him because his eyes always cued me as to what we were going to be doing next, where were we going to be going. And I had great experience, great stories from that show, just amazing. We would take it uh, once a year to Washington and do a live uh, State of the Union address uh, where we had the most bizarre guests. And um, um, we took it uh, live for two weeks in L.A. every year, and we would do a bunch of live programs from there. With You get a few, obviously a few more celebrities there. But I liked the show when it was in New York because in New York we had m- much more access to D.C. and New York where you had writers and uh, polls and – politicians and um, uh, and then you bring out the, the star that was happening through town from Hollywood so it was a very strange mix yeah that makes very sense. strange mix and I loved it it's really fun on the children's programming side of things what what was it that made Sesame Street so magical you think because I mean even Barney as an example there's so many other shows that kind of came and went yeah, and Sesame different. Street just lived on and on well and Barney on. Barney was in existence for 20 years but but Sesame Street is still in existence and it's 48 years now 47 something so like why, that so why when so many others have gone away I'll uh, tell you what um, I think the best quote I've ever heard about that came from Joey Mazzarino, who started off as a um, as a puppeteer, actually as an apprentice puppeteer, became a full-time puppeteer in the show, then started writing and directing. And he's just a great guy. And, a, and he had a real interesting insight. And he felt that ultimately, <clears throat> if you look at the 47 years, Sesame Street's biggest claim to fame was celebrity. And that, um, that we celebrities would look to get on our show and be paid scale to do it. And then getting paid scale in New York City is no, it's no mean feat. Um, so, um, and those are my biggest experiences at Sesame Street of working with celebrities. They're, they're extraordinary um, how they come in and they just change. They literally change just to do Sesame Street. And I... And I have a very bizarre mix. My four top celebrities are like um, R.E.M., um, Garth Brooks, Renee Fleming. Uh, she's the um, soprano for the New York City Opera. And Diana Krall, the jazz singer. Okay. There's a story for each one of those. What do you feel like is the greatest thing that you learned while working on Sesame Street? How were you most stretched as a, oh, I almost called you an artist. How were you most stretched as a director? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, it's my definition of why I like directing was how far I was stretched because at Sesame Street, all of the people you work with, um, uh, from the graphic designers to the um, to the wardrobe people to the actors, the puppeteers, the music. The music was kick. It was the best. Um, and uh, all these people are are at the top of their uh, top of their craft. And, and to have the privilege of, of kind of organizing and managing a group like that 
Yeah, and again, that's uh, Sesame Street is its own thing now. So when you walk in, it's not like you're going to go in and put your stamp on it. You know, you, you have to you have to um, kind of leave your uh, your own ego at the door and your own visions at the door, and just manage people in the right direction. And that was that was that was the prime learning experience because it paid off for me at Barney. It paid off for me in every children's show I did from that on, from then on. Uh, I was thankful that that was the only, that was the first children's show I did. Yeah. Um, so so you, you got to work with the best of the best and you got to ask things of them, can you do this? And they would say yes, and you'd go, yes, that's what I would like. And that's that was wonderful. That was an incredible experience. And the set was like a playground. It's just like a playground. Um, I don't. I don't think. I, I. I barely can look back on it now and call it work. It never felt like work. Never felt like work. If everyone listening to this right now could hang out on that set and watch Sesame Street be created and filmed for one week, what would they walk away with, realizing and learning? What would they notice? They would notice that um, seriously. And I. This is going to sound so kind of. Um, maudlin, I guess is the word. I don't know, but um, it's a good word for someone who doesn't want to be a writer. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, um, you'd really feel um, there's an extraordinary amount of love and admiration on that set between everybody who works on it. So, so no one ever says no. They always say yes, and if they want to say no, they they say, "Well, this is why I don't know if we can do that." But then they generally often say, "But we can try. We can try to give you what you want." And um, and it's it's up and down. Collaboration is like, you know, when you're when we did um, when we when I did Renee Fleming. I did this thing with Renee Fleming where she was doing this alphabet, uh, this uh, this counting song. Okay, I had fifteen puppeteers and probably about twenty five puppets coming in and out of frame on her. But I wanted to shoot it with one master shot. I didn't want to do any cuts, so that means we had to do a take from top to bottom perfectly. And she did four of them because she got the idea, and the puppeteers were amazing. I mean, we had to we had to choreograph them because you know you have people stepping all over each other and running into each other and falling over, and and then you'll see the arm and we can't see the arm and and there's nothing to cut away to because I didn't want to, so I purposely shot it without any cutaways. I didn't want I just shot it with the one camera so that we had to stick to that, and everybody was willing. They loved it. They loved doing it because it was like doing live. It was like doing puppetry live, which a lot of these people have done. Um, so everybody got on board, and it was hilarious. And I'm working with an opera singer. And basically at the end of the song, I had all the puppets attack her, kind of wanting to get a little piece of her, you know, you know yeah. just moving up to her and, yeah. and just – and it was, it was funny. It was a funny moment. It was one – it was about a two-minute joke. It was a two-minute joke, and, um, and it worked. And she did it over and over again, well, over and over again. She did it four times. And that, to me, when you see that kind of collaboration and cooperation, um, and it's all creative, and every take that went by, one of the puppeteers came up with something new that made it even better, you know? So when you see that as a, you know, and I remember all the people that were, I remember Diana Krall walked up to me afterwards. Uh, she was nervous. Um, this was, she hadn't really broken yet as a big artist, 
but she was known in New York City. Um, and um, she was very, very nervous. And she did this song with Elmo. And I had a, a group of, I had three pigs that were, did a little trio, female pigs. You know? And it was just, yeah, you're telling that to somebody, you're going, yeah, really, that's what we were doing. <laughs> um, but um, um, she walked over to me afterwards and she gave me this enormous hug. And she says, this has been the best day of my life. And I'm looking at her, you know, just like I'm looking at you right now. And then she was serious. This was the best day of her life. And, you know, what is that about? It's about that kind of collaboration. You know, I suppose that another part of it, but you don't see them there necessarily, is that people love the fact that they're doing something for children. But, um, you know, it's just all hands on deck. How can we make this really good for you? Um, and everybody's asking each other that. And that's, I've never had, I've never experienced anything like it, and I've never experienced anything like it since. I want to ask you about Fred Rogers. Um, at this time of recording, yesterday was his birthday. Yeah. And before we started recording, you, you said something that I wrote it down in my notes. You said, yeah, everybody wanted to kill Fred Rogers. Yes. <laughs> um, tell me about that. Well, the guy I, the guy I specifically, um, when I worked at WGBH, our general manager was a guy named Jack Caldwell. And Jack Caldwell was just, you know, a, a, a tough, smart Irish guy. And uh, I don't even know if Caldwell's Irish, but he seemed Irish to me. <laughs> um, at any rate, um, he used to, he would come back from these PBS conferences all the time. And, he, he, and Fred Rogers would speak at them and he, he'd say, I just want to kill this guy. <laughs> I cannot listen to him because he basically talks the same way. Everywhere is that he talks on TV. That's him, and um, and it's extraordinary. But everybody, I remember. Do, uh, do you? He was on the Johnny Carson show one time, and Johnny Carson is sitting there, and he's listening to him. And you know, Johnny Carson was as polite as he could be all the time, and he would sit there like I'm doing right now, which is kind of nodding. You know, he's nodding and going, yeah. Hmm. And Mr. Rogers would be talking in that monotone, very measured and very quiet and very gentle. And at one point, he, he sticks in a little crack there, and, and then Johnny Carson says, says what, who is this guy? Get rid of this guy. Would you do? And he's, he starts going off on him. You know, I can't believe him. Get rid of him. I, I can't do this. I can't do this. Got a laugh, and then he came back around to it. But it was just like nobody could deal with him in the real world. You know, but um, children love this voice, and why? Um, because they trusted it. Because he wasn't condescending. Uh, in his own way, he wasn't condescending. He would look at the child and just be be on that level without being without speaking in baby talk or without uh, or without being too saccharine. Even though he was fundamentally in his DNA saccharine, but. He wasn't trying to be saccharine. It was just who he was. Fred Rogers was called in to sit with a round table of top uh, executives in television and 
top executives for children's programming. It was during the Clinton era, so Bill and Hillary were there. The president of CBS was there, Geraldine Laybourne, the person who developed Nickelodeon, the creator of Nickelodeon. Les Moonves, as the head of CBS, was there. Everybody was there. Wow. It's an incredible group. Um, and um, everybody's chatting about this, and it's, it's a C-SPAN show. It was on C-SPAN. You might be able to see it on C-SPAN or in their library. And... Um, um, towards the end, Mr. Rogers, they, it kind of comes around finally to him. I don't know. He didn't say much the whole time. He said a little bit. But he's, he looks at all these high-powered people, and he starts talking like Mr. Rogers. And that's who he always talks like. <laughs> that's, his, that's his reality. That's who he is. And he looks at them all, and he says, I want you to take a moment right now. I'll watch my clock. He actually looks at his watch. I'll watch. I'll watch my clock, and let's take a let's take sixty seconds. And what I want you to do is, I want you to think about that one person in your life who encouraged you and who helped you take a step forward. Okay, I'll watch my clock. Let's all do this. All close your eyes. So all of these people are obedient. They're all. Oh, this is Mr. Rogers telling us to close our eyes and do this exercise. We better do it. So they all close their eyes. So in television terms, you've got 60 seconds of dead air, okay? Um, you know, fortunately, they began to look around the room, and they could see that, you know, some people have a tear coming down. And these are all the, all the high-powered muckety-mucks. And then, faithfully... He doesn't let it go on for a long time. He lets it go for exactly what he said he would. And he says, thank you all for doing that. When you think about that person, when I think about that person, I like to cast us in that role, is that we can really be a force for children. We can really help to encourage them um, and give them that little extra, you know, to move forward and to try things and to do things. That's all he said. That's it. Everybody was there like, you know, mouths were hitting the ground. So he commanded that kind of power, and he lived that kind of life, and he did that kind of television program. And I just remember Jack Caldwell would come back and talk into these meetings, and uh, he'd just be red-faced. I'd like to kill this guy. I can't, <laughs> I can't believe this guy. Um, because it, 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 harkens back to, it harkens back to Jack Nicholson, you know looking at Jack and says, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. And that's why a lot of people couldn't handle him. A lot of people couldn't, but kids loved him. But that's, a, that's an extraordinary moment. You know, and then, of course, there's that, uh, his great um, conversation at Congress trying to save yeah. money for children's television, and he actually, he actually does it. Yeah, it's and an amazing And you're clip. walking it, and you're, you're watching it, and you're going, my goodness. Yeah. That kind of voice had power. How? How refreshing is that? Why don't we all watch that right now? Now's a good time to watch that. I was going to ask you, what, what do you feel like we as a society as a whole could learn from that example? Civility. Listening. Um, we don't listen anymore. We don't know how to listen. Fred Rogers knew how to listen because those breaks were even on the television show when he'd be talking to kids. And he'd pause for a second and you'd be, you'd be squirming. But he wants your attention, and he would get your attention that way just by listening. Don't you like to be listened to? Don't we all like to be listened to? You know, 
not necessarily obeyed, but listened to. So what does the world need right now from storytellers? Mm. Well, I hate to be so, uh, I mean, this may sound a little bit, um, I don't know, pedantic, but based on what I just said, you know, I think story, good storytellers are the, are the people who listen to what, to what they are writing about and or they listen to themselves. And they, they, they have deep internal silence where they can hear what's going on. If you can't hear that, it's hard to tell a story that resonates. I could have talked to Steve for hours. There was just far too much to squeeze into just one episode. But I love how we wrapped up. I think we can all do a better job of listening, both as creators and storytellers and as human beings. If I'm honest, it's something that I've tried to get better at, even since starting the story podcast. I've tried to do a better job of listening during some of these conversations, and I still have a lot of work to do. My personality type always wants me to jump in during conversations or interject what I think is a good thought or a funny comment. Listening sounds simple in concept, but it's harder to truly put into practice than it seems. But learning to do so will have a huge impact on our personal relationships and our creative work. But in closing, I had one final question for Steve. I was just curious if there were any closing words of advice that he had for the story community. Well, the, yeah, I mean, I, at least in my discipline, because there's so many disciplines within my discipline, um, find out what you love and what you're good at. Because there's a lot of things to do in this business. And how do they do that? You just do it. You do it on an independent <laughs> level. I mean, we have, we have, for example, in this city, we have 48-hour film festivals. You know? I mean, those are fun. Because sometimes people get to work multiple roles or they get to work outside of their comfort zone. And you see what it's like. And sometimes you'll find something that really is just incredible. You know? And I found that at a young age. I was fortunate when I got my job at South Carolina Public Television. I found out what it was to do everything. You know, I edited the show, I wrote the show, I produced the show, I directed the show, I lit the show. Um, and um, that was fun. And I still to this day am th thankful for all those experiences. But am I an editor today? No, no. Uh, am I a lighting designer? No. Um, you know, I do something very, very specific. And I find it very specific too. And I think that's where the joy is. The joy is finding something that you really are good at and you enjoy doing. That's why we do what we do, isn't it? I mean, that's why I do what I do. I think I'm pretty good at it and I like it. It's fun. It's interesting. I learn a lot about people. I get to hang out with people. I get to talk with people. I'm lonely. I'm a lonely guy. <laughs> um, but that's why, that's why I do it. Find out who you are in the process of doing what you think you want to do. And if it doesn't work out, go do something else. I mean, I, you know, they had a, they had a, a um, professional concept when I was younger. You had two choices to make. You could, uh, in your 20s, you could go do a lot of crazy jobs, do a lot of different things, but that would be a good way to just find out, you know, really know what you're good at. And then other people said, no, your first job you need to stay at for about four or five, six years and, and get solid. And, you know, each way worked for different groups of people wasn't going to work for me. 
you know, and I did the most bizarre array of jobs that whole decade. And I'm so thankful to this day that I did um, because I really had no idea who I was or what I wanted to do. What's the funniest thing that ever happened on set of Sesame Street? It was at the Sesame Street Christmas party. <laughs> okay, so at the Sesame Street Christmas party, what happens is the puppeteers all get together and they do a show. And But what happens is, is all of the people who work at Sesame Street, they bring their children to the show. And every year they bring their children, they regret bringing their children. <laughs> and it's like, it, it's like clockwork. To hear the rest of the story and get additional creative inspiration, visit storygatherings.com slash podcast. This episode was produced by Harris III. It was mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and music was written by Aaron Farmer. The Story Podcast is a production of Astoria Collective. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>